Theology. Theology Unplugged. Welcome back to Theology Unplugged. I am Michael, and I am sitting here with Clint and Carrie, and we are continuing our conversation on, uh, last week we talked about Marxism and relating it to today. Now, guys, if you jumped in here, we're not going to give a big review, so if you missed it, Go back to the previous podcast, and you can get all caught up on the history of Marxism, and we'll probably uh, still deal with some of that today. But I want to jump in where we left off last time, and that was the question of, okay, we've got all this stuff going on in our culture today. Yeah. We, we um, um, Just about all of us are very acutely aware of everything that's being said. Now, you're, whenever you were talking about Marxism, Okay, I, I see that. Okay, that's way back there and what we have going on today. But there doesn't seem to be a one-to-one correspondence. Yeah, what is the right. correspondence that we find between Marxism and all of the stuff, the multiplicity of stuff that we have going on today? Absolutely. And, yeah, and so in order to do that, we need to kind of – you mentioned the Frankfurt School, right? Yeah, because, first... because even though, uh, as we said, you know, Marx didn't quite achieve what he thought he might achieve. I mean, England didn't – become a marxist place yeah but he um those workers revolutions grew and his ideas went forth i didn't know it was is was marx english did you say no that? no no, oh. no but he he found london to be the place where he could freely write his work and okay. live and okay. not be harassed yeah and, and associate with radicals and organized movements because london was a free society you yeah. know so <clears throat> but as we know now there were a lot of people in the world who who ultimately would decide that Marxism was a pretty good idea. Yeah. Revolutionaries who would become active, be activists, overthrow their governments. And we saw in the 20th century lots of regimes that claimed at least to be built on Marxism. And you would have seen his portrait in a lot of places in the world. Give some examples. You would have seen the Leninist version of okay. it, of course, um, in the Soviet Union that we grew up being afraid of. You would have seen the Maoist version of it in China. And by the way, the party that still rules China today is basically, you know, related to that same party. Yeah. Um, you would have seen it, remember remember the Korean War, and now Korea split. Remember the Vietnam War? Remember, and so we know the Castro family in Cuba, and we've been, we've been watching the last, you know, 15 years, Venezuela. And we saw Cambodia as well. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, you know, none of these sound like uh, good stories. None of these sound <laughs> like happy stories. Yeah, that's true. Um, it's one of the knocks against Marxism is that all of the iterations of it that were tried, there wasn't any, none of them turned out well. We've never had a good one. Would any, would everybody agree with you on that? Or would anybody say, no, you're just looking at it from the wrong perspective because you're looking at it from a capitalist standpoint. And of course you're going to say it didn't turn out well. Well, but, no, they wouldn't. They can't deny how it actually turned out because the body counts are too obvious. I mean, it's the 20th century is the deadliest century ever. Yeah. And the communist regimes killed more people all put together killed more people than all the centuries that came before they don't even add up i mean it's 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 so uh, it's the body counts not only the body counts but just the failed economic policies yeah I mean, because it well, didn't seem to work it doesn't right. seem to be working out too well in venezuela right now yeah so here so one so one as one scholar puts it lawrence reed he says without exception wherever marxist ideology found root it grew into monstrous depravity so that uh, for example the the editor of the Black Book of Communism, which is sort of a standard account of all the crimes of communist regimes, says that um, says that maybe upwards of around 94 million people were killed by
by the communist governments of the 20th century. And we know kind of like what that looked like because you, you basically you had all power. You had, you had full power takeovers from a powerful party that took over everything. So the state propaganda, all media, all propaganda, all production, all business and industry. Then you get no incentive for work. Everyone has... You know, everyone's describe a communist. I mean, for the people who are listening to this, describe that have never. I mean, you know, we we grew up in the Cold War era. We we know about Russia and all that kind of stuff, and maybe somebody's heard about Venezuela. But to describe what that type of government looks like, kind of the big picture. Well, I mean, it doesn't look exactly the same in every place, but basically, here are the things I think would be in common. It starts off with telling people, um, and this will sound familiar right about now, with telling people, hey, the rich guys have all the money and you're going to work busting your rear end for minimum wage that ain't fair they got big mansions and boats you you don't have those things um and so it starts with talking about the millionaires and the billionaires or if if you'll allow me to put it in this accent the billionaires right that's what it, really in every case you know i went to venezuela years ago when chavez was in power that's how we got power he told all the people, look at these rich guys and these big oil companies. You're going to let them make all this money while you're poor? And so you pretend to be the champion of the people. I will spread this wealth. I will reallocate. And everyone will be equal. The problem is um, when those parties take over, they don't have a Bill of Rights. You know what I mean? They so once they get all... Imagine a government seizing all the control of everything. Um, it, it's kind of like we talk about big corporations. Yeah, we don't like big corporations. They get corrupt. They got so much money. No, we're all kind of, it can gross everybody out a little bit to see yeah, their excesses, yeah. you know? Well, that's corporatism. Too, yeah, that's corporate. That's not capitalism. Right. That, yeah. That's what, that's, it's, it's capitalism helps, helps them fuel it and help, they, they're able to, uh, to work those levers, that system to get all that money. But you know what's worse than, the only thing worse than big, big corporations are big, big governments. Because corporations don't have armies, don't tell the police what to do. Corporations don't beat down your door and say you're coming with us and incarcerate you. It's governments that do that stuff. Yeah. So once, once instead of having some big corporations, you have one big thing and it's just the state. Yeah. Now you're at the mercy of whoever rules the state, and power tends to corrupt. And then you get you get all the usual well, if stuff. If I'm growing up in one of these countries and I'm dreaming, you know, my future. Um, you know, like right now here in America, we dream of the future and you could go, you know, all kinds of different directions, big dreams, small dreams, whatever. What would, is your, are they, are they telling you what to dream? Um, I mean, they're telling you everything they want you to think. So if they have propaganda, like the North Koreans put a radio in your house yeah. that's set to the state, the state's single radio station. But you know, you can read guys like Alexander Solzhenitsyn who came out of the Soviet gulag system gulag and they, they'll tell you what life was like and, you know, he tells the story, for example, of uh, it's a climate of fear. Like they describe, here are some things that they will describe that, are, that are, seem to be part and parcel in all of these governments. Corruption, of course. Anybody surprised that once you once you put all the money in a big pot, whoever has control of it might mm. get corrupted by it? So corruption. Um, you get central planners who think they'll, they'll plan out your life, they'll do everything. What happens then is desperate poverty because some people get left out. And... Also, you get intimidation, state domination. The, fear, the citizenry becomes fearful because it encourages you to, to rat on people. There are no personal liberties. Um, there's a lot of thought police and Orwellian kind of you know language control. You tell everyone forced confessions and show trials. You ever heard of that? Where you have to. This is this is something that was common in China. It's kind of like what you see now, where a corporation leader 
has to apologize for a past tweet and, and they all sound the same like they're in a like they're in a hostage video yeah, yeah. um that kind of thing because they are informants the are day. everywhere yeah. everything is bugged everything is tapped and suspicion alone there's no rule of law you don't get you don't get all of those there's no due process all the due process yeah. you you would like you, and so solzhenitsyn describes it and he talks about how for example there was a time when uh stalin i think it was stalin stood up and everyone starts clapping you heard this story <clears throat> where they all start clapping and all these informants are watching and and, and the, the the applause goes on and on and on the reason they come to realize is none of them is stop, willing to be the first to stop, to stop clapping. clapping and sit down hmm. because so they're like clapping until their arms are about to fall off. Yeah. Finally, one guy who owned like shoe factories or something, you know, because these are in the important seats, he finally had he finally stops and sits down. They all do, and then Solzhenitsyn says later that evening, they came and arrested that man. Oh my gosh. That's how that worked. In North Korea today, people disappear all the time. Like you didn't genuflect before the statue of the great leader when you walked by it. We saw that. Mm -hmm. We saw you. Mm -hmm. um, you got interviewed and you didn't refer to him as the great leader. So in other words, it's it's the whole top to bottom thought control big state idea, and I'm not saying that all of these happen to the same degree every time, but but at least we can say this much: the the total the sum total of the experience of people under all these regimes, misery. Yeah. Just misery. Yeah. So now, does that mean that Marx was wrong in everything he said? Does it mean that you can't have? Because I've had this conversation too. What what doesn't say is the kind of Marxism that I'm talking about, like this is what, for example, the uh, this is what a person might say who is uh, who teaches a class on these things. Yeah, the kind of Marxism I'm talking about is not that stuff. I'm not. I'm not. I don't believe in that stuff. I, that they got it wrong. They were oppressive. They didn't do it right. And one of the one of the sort of famous lines is it it hasn't been tried. Real communism, the way we envision has never yet been tried. We will be the first to do it correctly. Also, some people will point at um, point today at uh, some Scandinavian countries and say, well, they're kind of being socialist over there, and that's kind of working out. There are some, right, some criticisms to that. Yeah. Yeah, right. yeah. So yeah. They, they, they have a lot more bigger safety nets and a lot more taxes and all that, but it's still not... It's not I mean, full you, on. You can't really call socialist. it Marxist, can no. you? At not, any rate, economically, in uh, terms of the free market, yeah. I think that I think where we have to draw the the line, though, of where we have to kind of draw the historical line from that, because people might be thinking, yeah, 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 this, you're debating Marx. Who cares? He's dead. What's this have to do with this stuff now? Well, to do that, you gotta you got you gotta know. I think that aside from Marxism as applied and and enacted in those governments we mentioned. Forget about those for a second. Marxism, the Marxist ideas, as um, as ideas, not as put in practice, but from academic types, were all were still popular, and that's where we get to something that they call the Frankfurt School. So I might just mention what that is real quick, so we can know about who they are, because this is very important to the books people are passing around today, and that a lot of companies are telling people you have to read this book and do a yeah. seminar on it. They were influenced by this, the Frankfurt School. So what is it? So in 1923, these two Marxist scholars came together and they founded what was called the Institute for Social Research at the Institute of Frankfurt. Uh, it was, this was in Germany, the Weimar Republic. And so this would become a very active school. They were Marxist. And 
what they did was one of them was a lawyer and one of them had been his student. And again, again, the second guy, Felix Vile, the only reason they were able to found this school is his father was successful in the grain business and, and, and his capitalist wealth funded it. Another one of those ironies. Wow. So, so they started the school for studying Marx within studying, studying Marx. So 1930, a guy named Max Horkheimer became the director and he would be the director for three decades. His position, again, endowed by a wealthy businessman. Uh, so here's the kicker. So what he did is he widened the focus of this school that would come to be called the Frankfurt School. He widened its focus from strict traditional Marxism to interdisciplinary Marxist studies. They started to say, what if we applied some of the basic ideas, hmm. Marx's critical ideas, how he critiqued the capitalist system? And what if we look at psychology? and sociology and new media and mass culture which was kind of a new thing at the time and Horkheimer is the guy thought to have coined the term critical theory as we understand it and then he began recruiting people who were like-minded and some famous people like the psychoanalyst Eric Fromm was part of the school one of the things that these scholars were concerned about is the Nazi party these are German dudes and the Nazi party um, had come about, and these guys were really bummed out because, because, you know, the Socialist Party, right? The National Socialist. Sounds like it could be promising, but then it produced a fascist-style leader. <laughs> and so, and not only did it do that, it ran them out. They had to leave. And where do you think they wind up? First, they, they, they go to Geneva for a while, but where do you think this... Marxist school of study winds up where it can do its thing. America, baby! Hmm. They wind up in New York. Where was it originally? Originally, obviously, Ger Frankfurt. That's how it has Germany. the name. Okay. A school that was originally called the Garrett, named after Goethe, but it was basically a university it was in Frankfurt. Frankfurter, yeah. actually, I think. Frankfurter? Frankfurter, yeah. I enjoy a, a nice Frankfurter from time to there time myself. <laughs> So anyway, they become affiliated with Columbia in New York. And they just keep writing and influencing all these fields. Because these guys came from different fields. That's where you start to get critical theory in your sociology textbooks. So this and, is Marxism everywhere. This, it, is, this yeah. is Marxism gone democratic. Yeah, it's, it's, it's Marxist critique. This, By the way, that's why some people called it cultural Marxism. Because it wasn't just interested in yeah. the class struggle in the, in the economy anymore. It was interested in literature, culture, all this stuff. Yeah. Right? I found a few articles about that being literally called the cultural Marxism conspiracy theory because there's really nothing. There's no such thing, man. Yeah. So, so what I think, so, so what I think was most influential then, a few things. One is the idea of critical theory itself. So Horkheimer wrote a thing called Traditional and Critical Theory in 1937. What he was saying is traditional theory is when you just study sociologists to study society to understand it and they describe it and they explain it. But critical theory is the Marxist type. When you don't just explain it, okay, you, you now critique and challenge the assumptions and the systems with a view toward changing them for the better. So these are, this is activist scholarship. It's not just scholarship that says, I'll help you understand society. It's scholarship that says, I'll show you why society has problems in it, embedded in the systems, and that's, that's our quote, quote, critique of it. And I'm going to send you out like little evangelists to go preach this to try to change it. Mm. 
Another, so so uh, yeah. we're, we're, this is not then, like I said earlier, it's not quite a one-to-one correspondence, but whenever you take Marxism and put it in everything, then this is starting to look like a one-to-one correspondence with at least the development or the evolution of Marcus, mm-hmm. Marxism down into you know the Frankfurt and Columbia and everything else that uh, that we, that we see. This is just exactly what we would expect, right? I mean, this is this was coming sooner or later. Like we said, it's not that he, it's not that Marx would claim all these guys. I don't know, but they certainly claimed him. I mean, they used his name openly. So, so another thing, uh, I'll, I'll list. I'll just give two more things that I think come from this school that were that are important for right now for critical theory right now. Books that are getting that are on the Amazon's list right now. One of them is there's an idea called cultural hegemony. Hegemony. What is cultural hegemony? Again, I quote Billy Graham. Cultural hegemony. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but that's how he would say it. So this is influenced by this guy. So there was an Italian Marxist named Antonio Gramsci. I think that's how I'd say it. I don't know. And he and these guys were influenced by him, an Italian Marxist. And the idea here was he said, you know, it's not just the wealthy capitalists or government officials who control a population. It's the dominant ideas. It's the perspectives. It's the norms, the customs, the values. In some ways, we would agree with this guy. He's thinking in more worldview terms. But part of that sees because they re- they looked at they looked at Germany and they were like, how did a socialist party produce Hitler? What went wrong? And they were like, no, see, there's more to it than just... There, there's this thing called mass culture now. And Horkheimer was interested in this too. Mass culture was a relatively new phenomenon. You know, people don't understand there was a time when people only got... People only shared ideas with local communities. It was the first print media where, you know, for the first time... One 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 organ, if you will, one group of writers in one place told you what you should be concerned about in the world, how to think about it, and then people in all the towns and cities all read that same thing. That's that's how you you know what I mean. That's the beginning of this kind of. Remember, Kierkegaard was very um, was an early critic of that, mm-hmm. all that kind of groupthink. And to these guys' credit, they were kind of critical of that too, but they were just looking at it from a Marxist. Lens. And so they would say things like, you know, even the idea of, quote, common sense is part of a system that reinforces and justifies those who benefit from it. You hear the postmodern and subjective element in here, right? Mm-hmm. Where common sense, whose common sense? Reason, whose reason? All the cultural things, all the ideas of culture. Cultural hegemony. That's the idea. Hegemony just yeah. means power. It's ultimately, re- and in relativism, it's born from a relativistic, yep. like whoever's in power is who's, who knows, right. who's, decides what's true, good, and beautiful. Right. So So now you can say, hey, I'm not oppressing you because I don't have, I don't, I'm not telling you how to spend your money. I'm not whatever. You know what? They might say, yeah, but your, yeah, but your ideas are, are, are oppressive because they're the ideas shared by everybody. Mm-hmm. It's like, like a disease. It's part of that whole thing. Like today they'll say, today's writers will say whiteness. These guys wouldn't have said that. But they're like, whiteness. What, what the heck is whiteness? Whiteness is a mindset or an idea. It's a cultural hegemony. It holds power over everybody. Everyone thinks the way some white people want them to think. You see what I mean? Like yep. they think... So well, let, let's let's go yeah. back. Let's go back mm-hmm. and ask this question then. I mean, you take this away because I'm trying to think. Okay, what are the solutions? Somebody comes in from the outside and sees sees all this going on. Never has been exposed to our culture. Say an alien comes in, you know, a real smart alien. You know how you always have these situations. How would they look at this stuff and fix it? Because everybody's going to be looking to to fix something. So it's the identification of a problem. What is the problem? 
and then what is it that fixes it? Uh, uh, before we get to the problem, do a flyby. They just be like, <laughs> no, you just keep going. No, I'm going. <laughs> Um, does this all go away if we get rid of the middle class? If we get rid, if we if we get are able to give everybody the same amount of money and let's just you know let's just start there and nobody has any problems anymore? Or is it something more, as they say, systemic, deeper? Yeah, but see, that's the thing. Like we said, systems are the important thing. But some systems you can put your finger on, and some you can't. Yeah. So some systems are tangible. You look at officials and structures of power, and this person is under this person, and all that. Some systems are big, vague entities like, so if you're talking about cultural systems, and, and this is one of the problems I think right now with the stuff I hear right now from, from these guys is it's so vague that I don't know what I'm supposed to, what, like what action would I take? I don't even know. Like you have, you're not even pointing, I can't put my finger on what I would even do. It's just all these things are lingering in the ether. And yeah. it's not like we can even grab onto them and assess them and then change it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I hear and I hear I hear some of the politicians saying this. I mean, like one of them yesterday was saying, "Well, you know, we're going to continue to protest and have this stuff for as long as our system only benefits some and others don't yeah, have El, enough of El a voice." Omar. And I was like, "Is that who you're talking about?" Yeah, I guess yeah. that's who it was yeah, with the ex, so. yeah, the Somalian. And she goes, and I'm like, and I was just thinking, "Okay, well, how do I you know, you're a politician, like your job is to actually write specific legislation and try to draft it to change things." If you think so, but what would you write to fix that? It's so vague. It's like, as long as some people benefit too much and others not enough. Oh, okay. Well, thanks for being what very, very specific mean? about it. Yeah. I don't know what that means. But this vagueness then, then of, of a system like culture. And I, I, to me, one of the, one of the scary things that comes out of this also is something from a French guy. There's a lot of French guys involved too, not just Germans. A French guy named Herbert Marcuse. And he, there was a, there was an essay by him. He, he joined the institute way back in. He was in it for a long time. He became an American and he never left. He actually helped work for the government to help. Because he like understood the Nazi government, somewhat, or whatever. Anyway, so, but he wrote a thing once called repressive tolerance. This is an essay that he wrote. Repressive tolerance. And he became influential in the '60s. He's an old guy in the '60s, but in the '60s, he'd go, he'd give a few speeches. And a lot, and they called him the father of the new left. A lot of '60s radicals would look to Herbert Marcuse, like, "Yeah, this old guy really gets it." The important thing about that essay, "Repressive Tolerance," is it challenged the notion of unfettered free speech, because what Marcuse said was that the dominant system of thought is so ingrained that the playing field just isn't level. And so, if we were to if we practice what he called indiscriminate tolerance, which is everybody's free to speak and say what they want. Well, this will still leave some voices marginalized by allowing this kind of what he thought of as this totalitarian dominance of the pro-capitalist point of view. So he advocated for discriminant tolerance, or what he called, this is a more pleasant word for it, liberating tolerance. But here's, here's, the, here's the rub of it, and here's, how he, here's just how honest he was. This kind of tolerance, he said... He said, the fight against organized repression and indoctrination may require apparently undemocratic means. These would include the withdrawal of toleration of speech and assembly from groups and movements that promote aggressive policies, armament, chauvinism, discrimination on the grounds of race and religion. And then he said more bluntly, liberating tolerance then would mean intolerance against movements from the right and toleration of movements from the left. Hmm. Now, 
I must give him big kudos for just the outright plainness of speech yes. right there. <laughs> Tell it like it is I mean, there. <laughs> that's what we have today, isn't it? Literally. It's a one-way tolerance. Yeah. What yeah. what uh, Doug Wilson well, calls total total tolerance. Yeah. I mean, here, here's what you have is you have the situation where people are coming in and saying there's people with power, right? And the people with power, whether it's money, whether it's color, whether whatever it may be, family upbringing, they have the power, and we need to shift the power around. But in order to get this power shift to happen, we have to have an authority come in that has even more power that makes sure everybody gets the right. I mean, it's distributed correctly because that's the only way. You can't you can't just say, man. I mean, otherwise you're just complaining, right? Well, that's Without why a you solution, would need a, it would make the most sense to have a Marxist structure to bring that about. A totalitarian. Yeah, it really is. And that really brings it around a whole lot is whenever you have, okay, the only thing that fits this model of the power structure is what we've seen in the past already with Marxism and trying in the present with a few different places. But in the end, we're, we're, we're adopting something that is so, um, uh, that is already has a history of failure and has even a, so much uh, a, a, aura about it, then nobody really wants to claim it outright, although there are some people that you know will claim right. it. But nobody's going to claim it outright. We're going to put it in a different package. But in the end, do these people that are doing this, because I'm, I'm looking at this and I got my in my notes right here, who is the leader? You know, I, I never can figure out who is the leader. And, and I'm sure you don't know either, but if you were to elect somebody, who is the leader of this stuff and who, who ultimately is speaking for people? Uh, speaking for this far left side, is it is it the new Democratic uh, running person running for office? Is it whoever's it's, running uh, for office at the time? Is it? I mean, who? who I guess let's stop there for a second and ask who's the leader. Beelzebub. <laughs> the devil. <laughs> I mean, I I don't know if there are leaders that are behind the scenes or people. I don't know about any of that conspiracies or whatever. I only know what. Well, it seems like there's somebody pushing. You know, it's kind of like the heckler in the crowd that gets everybody going. Yeah. Somehow they're all going in the same direction, and it keeps on getting steered. Well, you know, that's one of the things. Let's take these protests recently. There's no discernible leader out on the streets. That's mm. what people are saying that they. There, there just aren't. It's a leaderless mm -hmm. movement. Um, <clears throat> but if we want to say maybe certain people that are in power that could potentially be leaders and have the, um, the political yeah. clout to actually implement some of this stuff, well, I mean, there'd be a lot of our left-leaning politicians. Mm -hmm. and then well, certain well, acad acad I mean, we know where it starts. That's what we're talking about yeah. here. It's like uh, Abraham Lincoln's quote, you said one time the philosophy of the schoolroom will become the philosophy of of the uh, the average street in America. Yeah. So it, it takes it a while. It filters down. People have to write books that are digestible for for an audience, yeah, and then you got to you got to wash enough generations through the system. Then if if you can get entertainment on board, that's going to help a lot because then they can re, they can reinforce it too. I was going to give honorable mention to a couple of more people just to mention their names. You'll know them. One is Jacques Derrida. These are not these are not Frankfurt schoolers, but they're postmodern French mm -hmm. guys. So they have in common, and I and I they were in school when I was in school. Yeah. We were reading about them, and so I think Derrida, because of deconstruction, what he called deconstruction, which sounds to me a lot like Marxist critique, because you take stuff, you take everything, you take it all apart, Dismantle you try to it. find where it's wrong in different ways, where there are hidden assumptions, and, and even if you don't find a solution, the virtue is taking it apart. 
Yeah, yeah. But you can end up reinterpreting things and making texts mean brand new things, which is handy if you want the, say, the Bible or Constitution to say something different. Yeah. Um, yeah, no authorial intent. It's a reader right. response hermeneutic. That's big time within both, well, Derrida and Foucault, for that matter. Yeah. Another. And, and, and they up. love Foucault. They lo I yeah. see him quoted all the time. And the thing about him is we're back to the power issue because his whole thing is he focused on power a lot. So they love him, but I was, you know, and I, I find the guy almost impossible to understand. I tried to read this stuff when I was in seminary, you know, they, and, and I, it was, it was headache inducing to try to read these guys. They're purposefully um, obscure in a lot of ways. Yeah. And Foucault likes Nietzsche and Nietzsche was purposefully obscure. So they mm. do that stuff. Um, but uh, here are a couple of bullet points from our main man, Millard Erickson, right? Theologian. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. he's brilliant enough to take a guy, a guy like Foucault and I took a class from him. Millard Erickson back in the day, and I thought, I need a guy like this to help me distill this stuff. Yeah, sure. So for Erickson writes about this. He says that um, he says here here is here is the nutshell of Foucault's primary thought here. Power is primarily political and cultural power to control thoughts and norms. Those with power determine what is history, truth, morally good, praiseworthy, scientifically valid. Um, Foucault wrote, quote, system is a sign of the exercise of power, organizing all truth into an integrated whole. So there's the system idea. Foucault also wrote, reality is not simply reported by discourse, but constructed by it. Foucault wrote what he called fictive history. We were talking about this, which is a term he gets from Nietzsche. Because since nobody can really say what history is anyway, he's okay with rewriting it a little bit. Um... He also said pleasure is to be prioritized as having very high value. That sounds like the way people think right now. And, quote, the way to alter truth is not by intellectual argumentation, but by changing the political conditions that produce truth. Hmm. So that produce truth. That produce, that produce truth. Arbitrate truth. truth, yeah. So there you go. And I think that, you know, these guys have been in the literature and in the schools and in... And, and so it's filtered in and filtered in. And then simultaneous to that, the church over our lifetime, weak, weakened influence, secular culture kind of gains ascendancy, entertainment becomes a lack of way more dominant. A, la a lack of sophistication in these areas from the pulpit. And, and, and people have never, don't, don't, the, this the is not the kind Christian, of arguments that are getting right. said about, you yeah. know, this stuff. It's not, let me compare it to Marxism and tell you how we're going to correct on this. It's people, as long as you have a blank slate you're dealing with, it seems like revolutionary great ideas. I mean, even communism or Marxism mm -hmm. may seem like that to but the average there's, person again, out there. But there's, too, with the 20th century, again, to, to look back and criticize the, our church, which we do, but is that is that lack of sophistication in these areas and, uh, you know, the de-emphasis of the importance of philosophical and theological pursuits um that's and in this case historical too historical right, right. because in, in those the history of those thoughts as they progressed into where we are now but yeah. at any rate it's because when i was exposed turning to these a things, blind eye to that stuff i mean look i I'm, for like the first time in seminary i, I right? got or what we'll, call it, well no college. college actually because i you know i was fortunate to get what is rare these days which is a real liberal arts education what right. some people today might even call it classical education sure. because you just studied all of western civilization absolutely what actually happened with but you know and all the great works and so i'm exposed to all this stuff too difference is when you read it from the point of view of christian uh christian point of view that's sort of you know biblically grounded and oriented then you size it up you discern things you say well they're probably right about this wrong about that right now take that away and take a kid 
who's got no 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 real worldview foundations to speak of. It's just a big mess. It's all just you know it's a hodgepodge of various stuff they you know tweets they agree with combined with shows they like to stream, and not much not much with much depth beyond that. And now for the first time they read stuff that sounds kind of smart and intellectual and addresses the world's problems. And it becomes their religion. I think a lot of these younger people, um, they, they've got a void, you know, and this becomes their cause. They, a cause to fight for, a cause. They want to be on the side of the righteous against Satan. Everyone does. Mm -hmm. It's just they got it all wrong. They think, I'm standing with the saints. We are going out and preaching the gospel to bring about the kingdom of God against the enemy and his legions, which would oppress. They really think that stuff. They've been taught that stuff, and that's why they have so much zeal. Hmm. And but but as we will see, because I think then I think what we should do in our next ones when we do this again is, I think now we should look at the contemporary books being handed out in schools. Mm -hmm. uh, that I'm talking high school and and colleges, of course. And corporations sure. and friends passing them around. There are some bestsellers right now that that are mostly focused on race. You'll notice that the Frankfurt School and most of these guys weren't race consumed. Like that wasn't their main issue. They also weren't intersectional consumed. They weren't intersectional about it. I mean, you know, they were they were open sexually in many ways. I mean, Foucault and these guys, you know, notably, but yeah, I won't say what I called him yeah. earlier when we were <laughs> yeah. talking on the phone. Yeah. But, but they weren't, um, it wasn't part of their, it didn't feature like as a prominent centerpiece of this is what we're all about. Yeah. That's what it is now. Now, now everything is race and, and your identity, your gender and your, it's your, the whole intersection of all that stuff. But, but well, it's still these ideas that are motivating them, and and I think when we look at those texts today, the notion we'll see of the oppressed yeah. and the oppressor, uh, the marginalized and the marginalized, and it's still it's the idea still that, that you had better structure. be overturning it. It's like the one of the books is called Anti-Racism, yeah. or How to Be an Anti-Racist or whatever. That's one of them, right? You know that mm -hmm. one too. That's the no, Kendi, the guy named Kendi. Oh, okay. I don't uh, know the book. Yeah, yeah. Ibrahim or something. Ibrahim, you got like a anyway, Kendi, and then and then there's the lady that writes, right, white lady who wrote White Fragility that gets passed around. Why white people won't talk about race or can't? Because there's still an idea that you know white people are running scared. The viewpoint is that all the white people are scared to talk about it or very mad about it because this is their system. It benefits and privileges them, yeah. and they're mad if you challenge it. Yeah. And so they have rage and they're very fragile. That's what the books would indicate. And what you must be is an anti-racist, which now means not don't have a racist bone in your body or don't harbor prejudice. That's not what it means. The new definition of being an anti-racist is being an activist, an activist who is trying to overturn the systems. I'm still not exactly sure what all that means, frankly. Maybe that's why those books would help because if I don't know how much... Like I don't know what I'm supposed to overturn, honestly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. really. Yeah, I know. There's I don't no know. clear instruction. There's no clear leader. No clear instruction. Whatever, you know, we're, we're putting forward here as far as the group, people, associations. But you know, you, I know you were very passionate about this particular subject, and you were very excited about it. Whenever, whenever you're trying to look to our audience, and you say, "What is what is the one sentence thing you wish they would know? You really wanted to get this out. I, I've got to let everybody know this." Well, I mean, I'm not. I'm not very good at one sentence summaries. Okay, but, uh, let me try to do it. Let me try to do summary. it. Then you tell me if I'm right. Okay. Okay. okay go ahead. Um, the current situation that is going on in our culture, wreaking havoc, and 
overturning systems. Maybe that's a wreaking havoc taking that out because mm-hmm. it's it's the current system the, the current phenomenon going on in our culture is closely related to Marxism, so be warned. I mean that's really what I got out of it. And study Marxism because now you have you have a it's it's not a guilt by association, it is the exact thing. I, we're not saying, man, that's that's the Hitler. What is the old Hitler rule? You associate yeah. anybody with Hitler, and you get they're done for. This is what you're saying is that this is built out of a system that is. You better be know what you're it's, fighting it's for. It's not a genetic fallacy, is what you're saying. Yeah. it's not saying it's wrong because it's it's rooted right. in that. Right. No, it's saying that um, this is essentially the logical entailment of. A certain a certain brand of Marxist thought. This yeah. is it's just the logical. So this is this isn't something new, and and it's it's really just a yeah, plea and a warning. New. Yeah, it's nothing new. It's just applied to new circumstances. It's not yeah. something new. And the point of going back and doing all that stuff about Marx isn't uh, the point of that is. The point of doing that largely is a lot of Christians listen to this and they just should know. I mean, that's just informative. Yeah. It's like you, you just you ought to be aware of this this history. Mm-hmm. But the more important point that I would hope for, let's say somebody, you know, if we were talking to someone who was not one of our usual kind of fellow believers, but who was involved in this stuff, well, then what? Then the point of all that is to say not just, hey, isn't it interesting? Look at how all this stuff comes from uh, Marx through these European thinkers. No, the the point then is to say that stuff's wrong. <laughs> It's dangerously wrong. You've been yeah. misled. Your identity is not wrapped up in in your intersectional qual- intersectional qualities. That's a lie. You know, um, you've been you've been misinformed on race, on on its on what it even is. You know what it, and its meaning. Um, and you've been misinformed about American history. You don't know much. You know they you know they go out on the street and ask people how many. You're, you're even been misinformed on the news. Mm. You know, in other words, um, you're getting one side of things. Uh, there is a there is a there, you know what's ironic? This is another thing I was going to say. There is a cultural hegemony right now, but it's not our side. There, There is a point of view that has the power. You tell me who has the power. The, you know, the side that has the vast entertainment industry, music, now Media, probably big sports the news, too, the news, sports, all the main yeah. news outlets, the complete educational institution, or the side that doesn't. I mean, yeah. there is cultural hedge. They need to start to be counter their culture and question their the the hegemony of that culture that's been that's been giving them all this information all this time. Because you know, at the end of the day, for 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 all Christians, why do why would you want to why would why do apologists counter false things mm. for the good of people? It's for their good. I think because I think that heartache, misery. All that stuff, bad self-esteem, shame, a bunch of bad stuff lies down that road. If you, you know what I mean? Once you're done, once you put your pitchforks down and all the statues are down, then what? You know? Then what do you got? What are you left with? What are we going to be living in? Where everyone hates each other? Where there's all this division all the time? It seems like this has all been building for so long. Oh, it And and it prepared, prepared in such a way to where... People have had this like kind of you know silver bullet. When are we going to use it? When are we going to you know? When are we going to need to? And it uh, it almost feels to me like they uh, there's a group and maybe this is so simplistic, but it really does feel this way that hates the president so much, the current president that we have hates the president so much that they are pulling everything out in order to get him 
out of office. Yeah, I think and locally. And whoever or gets in, it doesn't level. matter. Yeah, that could definitely be, I think that is part of it. But I think we're seeing a lot of global movements as well, mm -hmm. that it's not just against Trump. Is, is, is America the center of this? Uh, it was, it, it it was the be. kindling yeah, because for the fire that yeah, started elsewhere. Which is weird because in some ways what we see is you know, America is is the most privileged place, let's face it. Life's better here than just about anywhere. And, and the odd thing is a lot of these young people, and, you know, we try to say this in a way that's instructive and not uncharitable, but yeah. they are, I see a lot of spoiled brats on the streets. Let's put it that way. I see a lot of white kids mostly. You know, it's, a, it's, like, it's like five to one white kids on all these streets. Uh, yeah. And I see a lot of white kids that I know, I'm pretty sure they probably come from suburbs. They probably got money. Parents probably bought them a car. Mm -hmm. Probably got the latest iPhone. Mm -hmm. They're doing all right. They're going to go home after they break some stuff, and they're going to stream a bunch of entertainment and eat whatever they want. And their life's, you know, their life's pretty pampered. Um, the statues they tear down are of people whose lives were a lot harder. You know, um, they haven't had to fight any wars. I mean, few, some there are people who have, but a lot of these. Kids, I'm just saying that I think um, I think it is. It's ironic, but it is here. And there are places in the world where, where situations, life is bad. Perspective is part of the problem here. You want, they want, you want to talk all day about slavery. Well, did you forget that there are currently lots and lots of slaves in the world, many of them Africans, yes, being actively sold and bought right now. It's happening. Do they know that? Do they care? Or do they care more, you know what I'm saying, about, yeah. about some... Yeah. I mean, I'm just saying there's a lack of understanding. There, there, are, there are women being you know, treated like garbage. There are minorities being racially discriminated in other countries, like you can't ride this bus. I mean, like Jim Crow style. That's happening. Just skin color. That happens all over. You're living here. I mean, you got it pretty good here. Could it be? Is it perfect? No. Could it be improved? Yeah. Sure, there's always room but for improvement. But the only way to improve it is ultimately by the principles upon which it was founded. Bingo. Bingo. By those same principles. These guys are foolish. They want to tear out the principles that are their only real hope for a good future. And replace them with what? That's yeah. the scary part. And I, I do think you're right. Look, the whole the whole Trump phenomenon thing, yeah, of course, he's, he's easy, to, easy to dislike. But I think we shouldn't be deceived. He's just an easy big orange target absorbing all of it. Move him out of the way. The hatred remains. Yeah. Because the hatred is not, uh, it's not just about him. They kind of make it about him. He's just like obvious and big and there and, you know, and everywhere. But you can remove him. And and there's still going to be a lot of anger from from those who are from the Marxist activist side of things, the critical theory pushers. Because as long as the system is in place, the quote systems, whatever that means to them, um, they they're not going to be on board with it. They're going to want to they're going to want to dismantle, and they're not above using violence, and they don't believe in free speech. Uh, and so I think for people who might be persuadable, maybe you could show them that. You know, I, I'm waiting for some people to have the guts to stand up, and a few people have, and say, you know, I like people, I like people standing for something, and I think we need racial equality and all that. But I am not for these guys over here because I don't agree. Their fundamental beliefs are corrupt, or you know, and, and detrimental, and retrograde. There's some people, a few, a handful of people out there. Yeah, too. because I think, yeah, how do that. we judge people? I judge people by their fundamental beliefs and their fruit. Yeah. And and when I and when I subject how they think in their character. Well, I subject this to the two those two criteria. You know, I think what are your fundamental beliefs? Screwed up, wrong, false. What's the fruit? Cities on fire? No thanks. Theology. 